Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. We are doing a, a three-part sermon series um, to kick off our new year called How to Love Your Neighbor. Um, so if you're able, we invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are in the Gospel according to Luke this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he, when he, where he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on him his own, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he said. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. You may be seated. I'm going to invite Pastor Billy up here to pray for him. God, as we celebrate uh, a new year and, and, and you know, many firsts, um, just a, a, a day in a new gathering space, Lord. I ask that you would use these ordinary means. This is something that we do every week. Our location has changed, but your faithfulness hasn't. So God, I ask that you would just enable us to receive what you have for us, enable us to submit to what you have for us, God. Um, renew and revive our zeal for your word and our zeal for being on mission for you. Be with us as your servant speaks, and be with him as well. In Christ's name, amen. I got to unmute myself. That probably helped. We're finally here. It's exciting. Um, it's an exciting time in the life of Quorum Deo Church um, to move into this new space, and you're sitting in pews that we didn't have to set up. Let's just, let's just sit in that for a minute. Isn't that great? Right, you know, like we went downstairs and uh, we were kind of getting everything set up, and Hannah's like, you know, I just it just clicked that for the first time in like years we're not going to have to tear down kids' check-in. I was like, and all God's people said, Amen. Right? It's exciting, right? And so we're in a new neighborhood, and it's a brand new year, and so just a couple of challenges to start us off in this year. The first thing is let's go all in. Right? Here's what I mean by that. First. Let's be in the Word together. Uh, 
Um, it's, it's January 1st. We all have the best intentions, but often we kind of sputter out as we go in the year. I think one of the biggest reasons that happens is the lack of accountability and community that we take into being in God's word. And so my challenge to you guys is let's be in God's word together. As you uh, head out this morning, you'll see on the connect table, we have a Bible reading plan. If you're not a, a paper person, if you're more tech savvy digital, if you use the Bible app, you can actually search for Quorum Deo Church and you can find the reading plan there. We also have it linked on the website and all that so that you can follow along digitally, right? So you can have it read to you. You can be in the Word together. It's going to be a steady diet of Scripture, and it's going to be exciting. So that's the first thing. Let's be in the Word. The second thing is let's be a praying people. Let's seek the Lord. Every time God has moved and grown his church, it has always started with waiting expectant prayer. And so let's be a people who pray and seek the Lord. We're going to continue together at our office space every Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. to pray and seek the Lord. But we also want to be um, just soaking all of this time every time we get together in prayer. Uh, and, and then the third thing I'll say is be engaged in community. So we're starting a new year. A couple things. You guys may have heard in the past we did stuff like DNA groups, all that kind of stuff. We're kind of pausing that, and we're going to push the things that we want to do well as we kind of recast vision for the new year. So there are kind of a few things for you to know about. First thing is we've got the things that Michael talked about already this morning, men and women's discipleship. We get together once a month to try and encourage each other. But the other thing is we have community groups that get together every single week. These are great vehicles by which we can actually be in each other's life, right? More than ever, we are in a season of life where people feel the weight of loneliness. People feel the weight and heaviness of the world, and we need each other to call one another back to the hope of the gospel. So let's be in community. But I also want to set the tone for the year by asking the question, we're in a brand new place, we're in a new neighborhood, how can we, how can I love my neighbor, right? That's what we're going to be looking at and answering over the next couple of weeks as we enter into this next season of life as a church. And we're going to start at perhaps the most well-known story in scripture, right? It's the most well-known story, at least on neighbor love, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, Here's my fear. I mean, I think most of us know this story, right? You've heard it. Even if you never grew up in the church, you know this story. We've heard it over and over again. It's easily Jesus' most well-known parable. We've heard it so many times, but I am trusting the Spirit to do his work with his living word to challenge us. Because while we may be familiar with this story, we likely don't often apply it very well, do we? See, if you were on your way to do something important, to give a presentation, for example, and you saw someone in trouble, would you stop and help? Would it be worth the inconvenience? And what if you were running late? Would you still take the time to help someone in need? There were two psychologists who tried to answer that question in an experiment about good and bad neighbors. There were seminary students who were unexpectedly asked on very short notice to give a talk to a group of their professors. Some were asked to speak on the parable of the Good Samaritan, while others were asked to address the relevance of Christian ministry to daily life. Some of these students were given, hey, plenty of time. You got as much time as you want to prepare. Other students were told, hey, you're running late. You got to do this quickly. And on their way to give talks, they encountered a man who's laying on the street moaning for help. 
who's going to stop to help him, right? And you would hope all of them are going to stop. Everybody's going to stop to help these guys because they're all seminary students, right? They're all people who are training to be pastors. Some of them had literally just read the story that Jesus tells about helping people along life's way, but unfortunately, they did not all stop. Some of them did, but some of them didn't, mainly because they were in way too much of a hurry to be a good neighbor. Coram Deo, if we want to avoid making the same mistake ourselves, we need to be willing to stop and help the people that God is giving us to help, even when it may be terribly inconvenient. Here's the big idea, a big idea today. It's this. Because we are loved infinitely, because we're loved infinitely, we should love our neighbor like Jesus. Because we are loved infinitely, we should love our neighbor like Jesus. Today we're going to see two questions pitted against each other. The first is a question of obligation. It's the question that we see this lawyer ask, and it's this, who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? In other words, what's the bare minimum I have to do, right? It's the kid sitting at the dinner table asking, how many more bites do I have to take before I can get up? I mean, it's really a religious question. What's the bare minimum? What's the bare minimum? Now, this question is pitted against a gospel question, which is, how do I love like a neighbor? How do I love like a neighbor? See, Jesus is going to ask us this question through this story. And my hope is, is that as we look at these two different questions pitted against each other, that we will be led to the hope of Jesus and how we live and how we interact in this world. So let's look at this first question, which is, who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? Look at verse 25 with me again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, we need to set up some context in order to understand this story. This is not a lawyer like you and I would think, right? This isn't someone who practices litigation. That's not what's happening. This is an expert in the Old Testament law. This is a biblical scholar. And what he's doing is he's coming to test Jesus. Again, we've seen throughout the Gospels, we spent a couple years in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that religious leaders typically don't like Jesus. And so they come to Jesus to test him. This man is not coming with sincerity, and he asks Jesus this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And in classic Jesus fashion, Jesus answers his question with a question. Well, you know the law, right? You study the law. You're a Bible scholar. How do you understand it? And the answer given is basically the same answer that Jesus had given earlier in the gospel. It's a combination of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. It's that the law demands both that we love God with everything we have and that we love our neighbor as ourself, right? So love God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, strength, all of it, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's the problem with that? We can't, right? We cannot do that 
actually, if you really think about it for a moment, have you loved the Lord with everything that you have and have you loved your neighbor as yourself? If any of us answered that question with a yes, we probably need to do some soul searching. R.C. Sproul says it really well. This is what he says. He says, there's no one, not one person who has kept the force of this commandment for the last five minutes, let alone for their entire lives. For to say that you love God with all your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your heart really is to say that you never sin because it would be impossible to sin if you loved God in this way. Imagine, if you will, that someone did actually succeed in loving God with all of his heart, all of his strength, all of his soul, and all of his mind. Even then, he would still be only halfway home because he would still have to fulfill the second part of the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That at times is even more difficult than to love God, for God is altogether lovely. There is no just reason for us not to love God, but there are plenty of reasons why we would find it difficult to love all of our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. See, this is a moment when this scholar should realize the weight of these commands. Jesus is showing him why he has come, right? Jesus has come to set right what we have undone. But here's the problem. This lawyer is not looking to Jesus as a solution to this difficult issue that he is a sinner. This lawyer doesn't like that. He thinks, hey, I've just got to be a good guy. Then I can go to heaven. You know, try my best mind my P's and Q's, do what I can, and then I'm in. He wants to justify himself. How do we know that? Well, Luke tells us, right? Verse 29. But he, this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? Who is my neighbor? He should have asked, how can someone find eternal life if they fail to love God and their neighbor perfectly? because I certainly haven't done that. That's a question that's seeking good news. It's seeking someone else to justify them. But this lawyer doesn't want Jesus to justify him. He wants to do that himself. He wants to be right by his own merits, by his own doing. And so what he does is he seeks to do what everyone who operates with a works-based religion must do, which is this. You have to try and lower God's standard to a place where you can be cleared by means of human effort. You lower his standard to the point where you're like, yeah, I can do that. You see, if eternal life requires that he needs to love his neighbor, well, then how tightly can I draw that circle of people to whom I owe that kind of love? Right? Is it just like my next door neighbor? Is it just my family? For him, is it just the Jewish people? Is that who I'm supposed to love? Because if he can define the terms of the law narrowly, then he's going to be able to do all the things that he needs to do so that he can earn it. He can get eternal life. Basically, he's asking, okay, Jesus, what's the least I can do? Right? How many bites of this do I have to take before you're going to let me get up from the table? How much do I need to study for this test, really? How much is it going to count on my final grade? I mean, how busy should I look before my boss is satisfied? I mean, this isn't really that unique of a question, is it? The problem is, for this lawyer, his scope is too narrow. And Jesus knows that his heart is a self-justifying heart. And I don't think the lawyer is just trying to get by 
by the skin of his teeth, I think that this guy wants the goal to be accomplishable, right? He wants to earn it. He wants an attaboy from God. What about you, friend? Do you think it's simply a try your best kind of life? Live a good life, check the box, vote the right way, hang out with the right kind of people. I mean, to this lawyer, Jesus responds by bringing up an entirely different question, which is this, how do we love like a neighbor? And the way he asks this question is through a story. So the second question that we have pitted against the first is this, second, how do we love like a neighbor? Right? The first is, who do I have to love? And second, how do we love like a neighbor? Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this is a location that Jesus' audience would know right away. It was a road that you would have to take to go, from, to go to Jerusalem and to return to worship, but it's a very dangerous road, especially to go it alone. So you can almost imagine Jesus is starting off this story by saying, a man walks alone in a dark alley. That's kind of the idea. It's a bad setup. The road's a treacherous, but a commercially important one. It's a winding 17-mile journey through limestone crags that descends 3,400 feet below sea level. It's a low valley. There's numerous caves along the route that provide a place for thieves and robbers to hide. And as a result, this road was famously dangerous. Most people would not have attempted to go on this journey alone. So it's no surprise that this guy on his journey gets wrecked, right? It's not surprising at all. He's beaten and he's left for dead. And Jesus goes on, verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So a priest and a Levite both go by, and you think, maybe this guy's got some good fortune, but alas, no, they walk on by. Now listen, it's easy to condemn these guys, right, to look at these two men as heartless, but their behavior is not without explanation. I mean, after all, obviously it's not a safe place to stop. I mean, the man lying there in a pool of his own blood is proof positive that there were dangerous people in this area. In addition to that, the beaten man may have looked as if he was already dead. I mean, Jesus says in verse 30 that he was left half dead. And if he were dead, then touching him would not help him, but would result in ceremonial uncleanness for the priest and the Levite. And finally, they don't know if they have any obligation to this man at all. I mean, he's not family, and they don't even know if he's Jewish. So perhaps the smart decision is just to keep moving and leave him there. So what's going to happen to this guy? Before we get to the third man, right, we know the story, it's important that we understand the context. See, using a priest and a Levite and a commoner, it's a, it's a typical group of three that was so familiar to Jewish understanding. Right? There's the priest, which is the religious upper echelon of Jewish society. Then there's the Levites, the descendants of Aaron who work in the temple. And finally, you have the commoner, your average Jewish guy. So it's so common, like this would be a typical joke. You would say, a priest, a Levite, and a commoner walk in a bar, right? That's kind of the setup. I mean, it, it'd be like, well, well, fill in the blank for me. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. All right. <laughs> or A, B, yeah, you got it. Ace, king, 
Boom. Look at that, right? We all know these things. They're familiar because we're used to them. And so you can almost see, here's the moment. Jesus is speaking to this lawyer, and the lawyer's like, okay, cool. A priest, a Levite. Okay, what's the commoner going to do, Jesus? We get it. And then Jesus says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It's like the air is sucked out of the room. A, 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 what did you say, Jesus? Because see, here's the deal. For Jews, Samaritans were the kind of people that you hoped fire from heaven would fall on them. That's how the Jewish people viewed Samaritans. They were not friends. In the ears of Jesus' audience, it would be like, he said, and then a terrorist walked up, right? It's so shocking to them what Jesus is saying. I mean, surely this is the villain of the story. Like, he's probably going to kick the guy on the ground. That's what's going to happen. But instead, he has compassion. And he lavishes kindness on this wounded stranger at his own personal expense. Look at verse 34. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set, on, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Despite the potential danger, he, pulled, he pulls out oil and wine. He attends to the man's injuries. Then he puts the guy on his donkey, takes him to an inn, takes care of him, spends a considerable amount of his money making sure that the man's needs are provided for, and then he leaves his visa at the front desk and said, whatever he needs, it's on me. This man's kindness is extravagant. The fact that he is a Samaritan makes this story scandalous. This story is Jesus' answer to the religious leader's question. The lawyer wants to know, hey, how narrowly can I construe my obligation and still please God? And so he asks, who is my neighbor? But in the end, all that he gets from Jesus is a question for himself to answer. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And Jesus has effectively reframed the discussion by asking the question that the teacher of the law should have asked. Instead of asking, who am I required to love? The question he should have been asking is, to whom can I be a loving neighbor? Jesus's words in verse 37 drive home the point. He says, go and do likewise. Love for our neighbor requires us to imitate the Samaritan in his extravagant, costly, self-sacrificing, culture-crossing Love. Coram Deo, as followers of Jesus, we are called to show love for anyone in need, even if that person would consider us their enemy. Tim Keller summarizes this point well. He says this, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we will exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. And Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Friends, this story is deeply challenging. It is. But if we stop here, 
right? If I close my Bible, we pray and we leave, then we're gonna think that the, the solution is that we need to go out of our way for anyone in need. If we do that, and that's good, this may as well just be a morality tale for us, right? There might as well be a, a singing cucumber up here. That's not the point, right? There, there's something much more profound here. And here's what we need to see. This, catch this. This is the most significant thing this morning. Third, Jesus is the better neighbor. Jesus is the better neighbor. See, the lawyer's listening to this story, and he's wondering, how in the world do I fit? Like, who am I in this story? Right? And, and really, we should ask the same question. The lawyer looks, and he knows, I'm not a priest. Okay? I know that. I'm not a Levite, and I am certainly not a Samaritan. So that only leaves one option. Who is he? Well, he's the beaten man, the one incapable of saving himself. Listen, the imagery that Jesus uses is intentional. To bind up wounds in the Old Testament, it's imagery for salvation. Oil and wine, what about those? Well, those are elements of temple worship that signify forgiveness. In the end, we do not understand Jesus' parable until we put ourselves in the proper place in the story. You see, we tend to read it only as if we're meant to find ourselves in the place of the people who pass by the helpless man. In that case, the most important question remains, will you show love or will you ignore the needs in front of you? And listen, that's an important question that we need to ask as followers of Jesus. But when we step back and we look at the bigger picture, we need to see that we actually bear more spiritual resemblance to the helpless man dying by the side of the road than to the Samaritan. Because this dying man, unless someone comes to rescue him with sacrificial neighbor love, he will certainly perish. In the same way, we are in desperate need of someone to show love to us in our sin-sick condition. And so from that perspective, we can see that Jesus is the true Good Samaritan. Jesus, he is the better neighbor. He came to us while we were still enemies. He met us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. He is the one who fulfills the requirements and pays the price of dying on the cross of Calvary so that our soul's wounds might be healed. He is the one who has risen to secure our eternal hope. And it's only by trusting in Christ's death and resurrection for us that we can inherit eternal life. You see, once we've, understand, once we've understood that, once we've seen that truth, we will find that we are actually able then to truly extend ourselves and love to those in physical and spiritual need. A heart that's been touched by the unmerited love of Jesus will be moved to show that love to others who may not deserve it. Because we are loved infinitely, we should love our neighbor like Jesus. Now that we have been loved by the ultimate neighbor we should ask, how can I, how can we, Coram Deo, love as neighbors? And this brings us to today. Here we are. It's our first Sunday here in this space. And we're grateful. We are. And right outside of our door are neighbors that we can love like Jesus has loved us. But the neighboring love doesn't cease when we, you know, pray and leave and get in our cars and go home. Friends, we live in divisive times. We do. I mean, it takes five seconds to realize that in the world that we live in. Everyone is angry and aggressive and frustrated. Imagine if one church 
one local church actually sought to live this way. Truly loving even our enemies with Christ-like neighboring love. Friends, that would turn Burke County upside down. It would. Scott Saul says this. He says, the world thirsts for a different kind of neighbor. Not the kind who deny their fellow man, take up their comforts, and follow their dreams. But the kind who deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus and his mission of loving a weary world to life. Coram Deo, will we love like this? Jesus has loved you. Go and do likewise. A couple questions for us to think about as we close this morning. First question is this. How have I been tempted to lower God's standard to view his love and approval as something I've earned, and how can I combat this mentality? I'll say that again. How have I been tempted to lower God's standard to view his love and approval as something that I've earned, and how can I combat this mentality? Second, how can I show neighbor love to those I pass by? How can I show neighbor love to those I pass by? And third, as I read this story with myself in the role of the injured man and the Lord as the Samaritan, how am I challenged to rejoice? How does this make me a better neighbor? As I read this story with myself in the role of the injured man and the Lord as the Samaritan, how am I challenged to rejoice? And how does this make me a better neighbor? Cormdeo. Jesus has loved us. Let's go and love our neighbor. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we have been blessed overwhelmingly by your grace. You have shown us compassion, Lord, when we were yet far from you. You have brought us near by the cross. We who were once enemies, we've been reconciled. Lord, would you make us a people of your own possession? Lord, would you show us your grace, your mercy, and your compassion? Jesus, help us when we don't know the answers, when we seek to love those around us who maybe drive us crazy, when we seek to love people when it's inconvenient. Would we not be deterred, Lord, but would we instead be welcoming and gracious and compassionate? Thank you for the hope that you've given us in the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.